Hello and welcome to the Cumberland Podcast. My name is Chris Fleming. I'm the Adult Ministries Coordinator for the Ministry Council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And today we're going to talk about the second Sunday of Lent. That's going to be March the 8th, 2020. So second Sunday of Lent, um, March 8th. But before we get into that, I want to let you know about some things that are going on in the denomination. On March 27th through the 29th, there's going to be a young adult retreat. You can sign up for that at cpcmc.org and that'll get you to where you need to go. Uh, or you can contact Nathan Wheeler at nwheeler at cumberland.org for more information on that. So that's March the 27th through the 29th, our young adult retreat. That's post high school to, I guess, whoever feels young at heart. Um, and also wanted to let you know that the uh, information for the hotel for the General Assembly is out. So you can go to www.cumberland.org forward slash G-A-O. And so that'll get you... To where you get the information and the promo code to go ahead and reserve your spot for General Assembly this year. That is going to be uh, June the 7th through the 12th this year in Louisville, Kentucky. It's going to be at the Galt House, so it's a nice hotel. Uh, room rates are $149 plus tax. So get on that if you can. Now we'll move on to the second Sunday of Lent. The text for this week are Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and 13 through 17, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and Psalm 121. The collect for today is, O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word. Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God, now and forevermore. Amen. So, um, I figured during this season of Lent, I'll just start with a Lenten moment. Uh, and uh, so, this, so in the season of Lent, the, the themes are uh, repentance and faith. That's always on the forefront of our mind. But remember that repentance is say, more than saying, I'm sorry. It's more of a recognition that we are inferior to God. It's from ash to ash to dust to dust, right? We are not God. And the proper place of humanity is humble submission to God. For it's in God that our life is preserved, and remembering at any moment the light of our life can be snuffed out. And, and so we are humble when we come before God. I have friends who don't share my Christian faith because they view this as an abasement or self-abasement. They feel that if God expects us to humiliate ourselves, then they would rather not bend the knee to Christ. Um, and many people think of God in this way, and why not? Truly, God is commanding us to repent of the things we hold most dear to our life, our identities, our material possessions, our friendships, and so on, if they get in the way of our relationship with God. But this isn't self-abasement, for in giving these things up, we find a God who in Scripture says, The greatest among you will be the servant, and all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. So in submission, we begin to find our true humanness, our true identity, what God has created us to be. Our culture around us has messed up our mind and heart, replacing God with our own desires or the desires of the world. So when we submit, God begins to recreate us in his image, uh, and we are in Lent trying to find some self-awareness and humility. All right, so the general themes that we have going on today, uh, one of the themes is, is promise. Promise is a theme for the scriptures today. In the Genesis passage, there's a general promise to Abraham that God will perform kindness to him. 
in these short four verses, you hear the words, I will, five times. It says, I will show you, I will make of you, I will bless you, I will bless those, I will curse those. In the psalm passage, there is a promise of protection. Paul in the epistle passage teaches that the promises of God are through faith. And of course, our gospel passage in John chapter 3, we find that the promises of God are by faith in Jesus Christ. So again, a promise is a theme. God promises, we apprehend those promises by faith. In particular, uh, we have faith in Jesus Christ, and it's in Jesus Christ that those promises are kept and performed. So another general theme would be faith. In the Genesis passage, we see that the first step of faith is by Abraham, in that he steps away from his own country, his father's house, and so on. None of the promises of God to Abraham or his descendants can be kept if Abraham doesn't first step out on faith. Faith in the psalm is illustrated by believing um, believing in and living in God's commands will lead to blessing and safety. We believe that God will never sleep and God is able to keep us from falling. In the epistle passage, uh, faith is contrasted with works and receiving grace is a gift of God, not working for grace from God. And in the gospel passage, faith is seen as a gift from God which enables us to see things from a godly perspective. Faith is also presented as the way of eternal life and communion with God in Christ. Another general theme is salvation. Uh, in, this, in the Lenten text for today, salvation. In Genesis, salvation is the byproduct of God's promises to Abraham. God tells Abraham, in you all the families on earth will be blessed. And he's talking about the redemption in Jesus Christ. In the Psalms, salvation is pictured as a rescue from earthly troubles and ills. And that's something to note. In the Old Testament, there's not a lot of talk about eternal life. Or they bind by. Everything's more earthy. So there's something to be said of God's redemption in the here and now. That God is protecting us now. Uh, Paul in the epistle passage explores how we receive salvation and justification by faith apart from the law. And of course, the great passage for us Cumberland Presbyterians, uh, the gospel passage symbolizes salvation as a new birth. In which we are redeemed from the world and we're ushered into the kingdom of God. And this is kind of a theme that is heavy in the text, but nowhere specifically in the text, and that all of our texts are God-centric, as opposed to uh, self-interested, I, I should say. Um, what I mean to say is there's a heavy emphasis on the acts and the promises of God. Uh, these are not moralistic in the slightest. Instead, they are proclamations of what God is going to do and what God has done in Jesus Christ. Uh, God will do these things for Abraham, almost as if Abraham is just along for the ride. In the Psalms passage, the emphasis is on God's activity in protecting and saving. And then Paul goes over the top to explain that humans cannot earn anything. They cannot earn the gift of God. It simply is a gift. Redemption and grace is a gift from God. God is working. In the Gospel passage, um, people somehow read over the verse where it says, the wind blows where it chooses, you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus is reminding us that salvation from top to bottom is a work of God. We can preach, but you know who knows where the Spirit is headed. Will someone repent and seek Jesus? Who knows? That's in the hands of God, hand of God. But we remain faithful in proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now on to general themes for today, uh, for Genesis chapter twelve, verses one through four. Uh, here we read of God's promises to Abraham. God is beckoning Abraham to go to an unfamiliar place and does not give him directions. 
In a way, God is making things completely out of the ordinary for Abraham. It's in these unfamiliar places, though, that you are forced to rely on the strength of God. And when you're in an unfamiliar place and you don't know what to do, God begins to reveal his power and majesty. So I guess the first point would be, we go in faith. If you had kids or you remember back to when you were one, you might remember the comfort you had when you lived in your parents' basement. Uh, you often didn't push yourself into uncomfortable situations like, you know, paying bills and taking responsibility. Because you lived at home and, hey, what are parents for if not to take care of you? And it wasn't until your parents said, hey, youngin', you gots to go, uh, did you make your own way or you started doing things that would make you become a grow up, grown up. It's adulting is what we call it. God is forcing faith in Abraham in going to the unfamiliar places and leaning completely on God. And so the second point then would be we go in the power of promise. So going into the unknown, God will create Abraham into a spiritually mature person who will become the patriarch. Faith manifests itself when you purposely go into the unknown with a firm belief that God has promised to do something great in you. There really is no difference when God tells Abraham to leave everything behind, all of his security, all of his family, all that is familiar to follow God, than there was for the disciples when Jesus comes up to them and says, follow me, and they drop their fishing nets and their fishing business and their families immediately to follow Christ. And still, there's no difference in Abraham leaving his home or the disciples leaving their securities to us when Jesus Christ tells us, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel shall find it. So we go in the power of promise that in uh, submitting our life to Christ, and God will do something great with us and, and protect us. Which leads us to the third point. We go in the power of God's preservation. God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So we go out in faith knowing that there will be trials and temptations, but God is always protecting us. We have nothing to fear. Read the psalm for this week. God never sleeps or slumbers. He is always keeping watch over us. Remember Jesus says it like this. Remember the lilies of the fields and the birds of the air. And that leads us then to the last point. And that is to go. The text says, at the you know after uh, God tells him to go and gives the promises, the text says, So Abram went. And like the disciples drop their nets, or Isaiah responds to God by saying, Send me. At some point, you just have to go. John Ortberg wrote a book titled, If You Want to Walk on Water, Get Out of the Boat. And that's it. We commit ourselves to actually doing uh, the leaving, the walking, the finding, the following, whatever it is. We just simply have to start doing it. So in Psalm 121, uh, this text is a little bit difficult to preach from. Uh, it does support the Genesis passage and that theme of protection. Um, but here's my shot for preaching on it. Uh, we all are looking for help, right? And there's many options uh, in this world to find help. Problem is, is that sometimes we get ourselves into messes because we look to the wrong solutions when we need help. This psalm explains that God is the answer when we are looking for help. God is a better solution than sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as, as people say. This psalm answers why we can trust God, for God was the maker of heaven and earth. God knows what's going on with you. God has an ultimate plan for you. So the first point is, God does not sleep nor slumber. 
This is a reminder that God does not forget, nor is God inattentive to God's people's needs. Instead, God is active in ensuring that all things are working together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. God will not let your foot slip when you turn to, to God. God keeps Israel. That's one of the verses. God keeps Israel. And keeps means something more than simply locking, locking something away in a safety deposit box, right, that nobody can touch. With regards to God, it means that uh, he keeps people from harm. He's attentive to their needs. God is active in ensuring that the people of God are well taken care of. So second, he gives shade. If you've ever worked outside, this is probably going to be much more meaningful to you. God not only protects us, but he is also the refresher of our souls. I'm not an outside worker. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I've worked many times, 12 to 14 hours, above a hot grill, cooking burgers, steaks, and ribs. I don't mind, but if I have to go mow the grass when it's over 95 degrees for 10 or 15 minutes, I think the world is ending. Air conditioning is certainly uh, needed for me, or at least some shade in a tree. Water's good, too. Uh, in Genesis chapter 31, 40, there's a good illustration of what this verse is, is trying to say. It's in context, Jacob is speaking to Laban. He's worked seven years for the hand of Rachel. Laban tricks him and instead gives him Rebekah and saying, look, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter first. And so he says, if you want Rachel, you have to work for another seven years. So Jacob says uh, this, this is what it was like with me. By day, the heat consumed me and by night, the cold. And I found myself Excuse me. It was like this with me. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. Essentially what this psalmist is saying is, uh, God becomes our protection in the heat of the day, and he uh, keeps us warm at night and, and surrounds us with care. And so third from the psalm is that God gives an eternal security. If you want to get real theological and impress your congregation... There's a movement in the psalm from preserving one's life from this earthly and physical existence. And in the last verses, the psalmist turns things into a spiritual and an eternal view. Uh, the psalmist ends by saying, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. The Lord is seeking more than just physical and earth, earthly safety for us. God is concerned about our soul and our eternity. God is keeping us so that we will be with God and all the family of God at that ultimate banquet table. Jesus, in his discourse in John chapter 10, says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. So the psalm passage is about preservation here on this earth, but also in eternity. You can have a good theological discussion about eternal security. Or once saved, always saved, however you want to term it. All right, the Romans passage. This, of course, is a central text for, for us Protestants. It's also a very basic text, which makes it hard to preach a lot on a lot every year, it seems like. But here's the best I got for you as an outline. Obviously, Paul is contrasting faith and works. The best illustration that I know of is when Martin Luther comes to the realization of this promise. You've heard that uh, his heart felt strange, strangely warmed. Uh, well, I guess that was actually John Wesley, whose heart felt strangely warmed when he heard uh, Martin Luther's reaction to uh, the book of Romans. 
But Martin Luther was freed when he, he understood that he could not earn God's grace. It was simply something he ascertained through faith. But here's the thing about Martin Luther. He desired God's love and acceptance above all else. So it seems to me there are plenty of people who want the cheap grace that Bonhoeffer speaks about. Martin Luther literally almost killed himself in trying to do good works to please God. And I'm betting that it was the passion, it was that same passion of pursuing God that enabled Martin Luther to debase that enabled Martin Luther to debase himself. Like he did things like um, crawled upstairs with on his knees, uh, and these were stone stairs, and he did that time after time, or he would uh, starve his body, these kinds of things. But it was that same passion uh, for which he had faith that God has uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, redeemed him and justified him. What mighty act can you perform that would turn God's head and God would say, yep, that's worthy? An illustration of this would be found in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5 when Naaman comes to Elisha. Naaman is a Syrian general. He has leprosy. Uh, but before he even gets to Elisha, uh, Elisha sends a messenger that says, if you want to get well, go dip seven times in the river Jordan. Uh, and the problem was Naaman gets upset because he says, look, why did I come this far? We have better rivers than that in Syria. Why would he just tell me to go wash in the river seven times? And one of the servants of Naaman says, you know, if Elisha would have asked you to do something great, you would have done it. How much more than if he asked you to do something simple? And, and the moral of that story is, is that we humans try to justify ourselves. We try to prove our worthiness when, when God says, no, this is all by faith and you have to submit and humble yourself. You cannot earn what, I, what I'm going to give you. So second, we understand that the promise comes through faith. So the point of the, this passage is that Paul says, look, it's not by works. And the promise uh, comes by faith. And, and so the illustration to that would be uh, when Abraham received the promise of, of being a great nation, it was taking God a long time. And so he decided he'd have a baby with Hagar. Uh, but instead of the baby... Uh, that he had with Hagar, named Ishmael. God chose Isaac, and Isaac was the baby that was was the the legitimate child. It was the baby of Abraham and Sarah. So instead of Ishmael, who was you know technically Abraham's firstborn, God chose Isaac. And then Esau was the older brother of Jacob, but God chose Jacob. And think about it in terms like this: Egypt was a stronger, greater, and more powerful nation than the Israelites, but God chose the Israelites. And it wasn't for any real good reason except that God promised Abraham that it was through him the the people of the world would be blessed. It was God's promise that brought these things to realization. And it's by faith that we enter into that story of redemption of God. It's not because we're worthy or we deserve it, but it's God acting faithful to the promises God made to Abraham. And then finally, we are declared righteous before God by faith. But understanding that faith and brings us into a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. The real point of faith is not simply to believe or give intellectual assent to a theological proposition that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. The point of faith is to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and to become part of the family of Abraham, and therefore we become a blessing to all people as well. The illustration I can give to you is this. Many times, if we're not careful, we talk about, quote-unquote, those people. You know who those people are. Those people are the people we don't know, but we know that they're nothing but trouble. It's that alcoholic that runs their car into the restaurant, or the drug addict that steals from the convenience store, 
or the family that sometimes comes to the church to ask for money because every month you know they're going to be short on cash. And we talk about those people. But here's the thing. All of those people we may look down upon, it's because, because they can't keep it together. Those same people are deeply loved and valued by someone they're in relationship with. The addict has parents that don't approve of what they're doing, but they love that person. Not as an addict, but because they love their son or their daughter. When you love someone, there's really nothing they can do that will make you not love them. But when you choose to not like someone, there's really very rarely anything they can do to make you like them. So when we have faith, it brings around a relationship with God in which God places God's love on us. Through faith, we are loved and we're considered righteous. We're redeemed because of God, not because of us. It's much the same way when the prodigal son is loved by the waiting father. And that brings us then to John chapter 3. It's a familiar text that can be difficult to come up with something new, but here's some ideas that aren't new. Remember Nicodemus is a seeker. He comes to Christ by night. It's important to notice, note, note that because John likes to use these little details as, in symbolic ways. Nicodemus is drawn to Christ, but Nicodemus seems to be worried about the world. And I've been in ministry long enough that in today's world this is completely normal. I have many relationships where people love me as a preacher and they love the church, but they also don't really want to be associated with either <laughs> in, their, in their workaday world. Also, sometimes people just don't want to look stupid asking questions. So, so Nicodemus doesn't know enough about Jesus to carry on a real intellectual conversation, and so he sought out a time where it was just them. Sometimes people don't want to uh, think about deep eternal questions when everyone's around, so I get that. So again, Nicodemus is a seeker. He begins his conversation by saying, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher of God. But here's the thing. If you never get past that, or by faith, throw your allegiance to Christ, not as a rabbi or a teacher. Instead, he has to be the divine son of God. Then this is the best conversation you're ever going to get. If Jesus remains teacher, if Jesus simply remains a man of God, um, that's, that's as deep as you're going to get. Nothing else is going to make sense. Nothing else that Jesus talks about will make sense if he's simply a teacher or a person of God. So the following conversation makes perfect sense when you think about it that way. Jesus says something like, You call me rabbi and teacher. You don't understand the kingdom of God without being born from above or being born again. Jesus is not just a teacher or a man of God. Jesus is God's divine son. And so Nicodemus, because he hasn't yet been born from above or born again, asks a really good question. How can one enter into a mother's womb a second time? And then Jesus responds, I'm not talking physically, I'm talking spiritually. You must be born of the Spirit. But here's the problem with that. You can't really force that. Jesus says the wind blows where it will, and so it is with the Spirit of God. Being born again is not an act of someone's determined will. The best that we can do is commit to search for truth. Or well, Jesus says, keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. And then in the fullness of time, if you're committed to seeking truth, you'll experience the birth of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you'll be able then to understand spiritual things. It's at that point that Jesus becomes more than a teacher. He becomes more than a person of God. Instead, he becomes our salvation. At that time, when you're born from above or born again, religion becomes more than a list of do's and don'ts and going to church every Sunday, but it becomes a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. So when our preaching and evangelizing then, we understand the best we can do is what Jesus says in John chapter 3, starting at verse 11. 
Very truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So as ministers or teachers, the best we can do is testify to what we know, what we've experienced, and we lift up Jesus Christ in every conversation. That's the best we can do. And when Christ is lifted up, Christ can draw all people into himself. We are not in the manipulation business. We're not in the entertainment business. We simply testify to what we have seen, heard, and experienced, and we lift Christ up so much so that people are drawn to Christ. If we try to manipulate, it's very much like someone trying to climb again into the womb a second time. So that's what I got for you today. Today, I hope it's been helpful. God bless you as you preach. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with all of our teachers, preachers, all of our lay leaders, that you would be with us as we work in our, uh, our callings, our vocations in the world, and that we would be light and darkness to many people, and that we would lift you up and you would draw all people unto yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.